This is the Washington Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Well, if you are wondering what comes next for Indivisibles following this year's midterm, you have come to the right place. So as you know, there's going to be a runoff election in Georgia on December 6th to see if Democrats can improve their margin in the Senate. And then even though GOP uh, will now control the House, Democrats still have a working trifecta through the end of the year. And that means a tremendous opportunity for some very critical legislation. So here to talk about all this and more is Washington's organizing manager with Indivisible, our dear friend, Nina Masavi. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? Hello, I'm I'm doing well. I'm feeling uh, weirdly energized even after this this election season. Um, I think my 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 body and my brain are giving me the last push through December sixth, and then. I'll probably collapse on the floor somewhere and take a long nap. <laughs> that sounds absolutely appropriate. And honestly, weirdly energized, I think, sums up how a lot of people are feeling right now. It's really yeah. hard to put into words, you know, just how we're processing the results of mm-hmm. this election. And, you know, we'll talk about legislative action in a moment. But I really do want to get your thoughts on the election, particularly what happened here in Washington in the 8th, in the 3rd. Um, you know how hard everybody here worked because you yourself worked your butt off. Uh, you and Ezra came out. You canvas with us. Just talk for a minute about the importance of the wins here in Washington. So I think one of the things that we can say really confidently now, right, is the West Coast, the the entirety of the West Coast, all the West Coast states play a really important part in the House and the Senate control. I think that's going to be the case for the next couple of election cycles as well, because of the amount of work that's being done here in the grassroots movement, especially the grassroots progressive movement, the ability to flip some seats and hold control in some of the seats that Republicans are going to be vying for. And then also just the, I think the the nature of what our states on this side of the country have been able to do at the state legislative level for the progressive agenda has been really important for Democrats. So the types of bills that have been able to pass in Washington, the types of bills in California and Oregon that have been able to pass have been monumental in making sure that many of the values and the the rights, honestly, that Republicans are attacking at the national level are able to be protected here. And specifically in Washington, uh, the two races that that Indivisibles got involved with at the national, the federal level, Washington 8 and Washington 3, um, were, were, were both unpredictable, right? They were both toss-ups. We had folks working night and day, weeks and weekends to hold Washington 8 and flip Washington 3. And I think that what all of this means for us on like the national level is there, like nobody knows what's going to happen, right? And there are no safe seats. So even a seat like Washington's third, but I think Jamie Herrera Butler won by like 11 points in, in 2020 mm-hmm. is, is now flipped to a blue seat. Right. And, and we don't know that that is going to be always going to be the case. So we, we can't rest on those laurels. Um, but it means we're able to make that progress. And I think it also dispels a lot of that like national narrative around the fact that the party who controls the White House is always going to lose big in the midterms. So I, I, I think it like 
all that we've learned in this last election cycle is nobody knows anything. Nobody can predict anything. Um, and, and the West Coast is going to be a really big player in these next couple of election cycles as we teeter in this really small majority in the House and the Senate. Yeah, I like what you're saying about how I think we really held the line on a lot of progressive priorities, uh, certainly showed grassroots strength. We defied history. I want to talk about the national picture here. So because yeah. as I said in the introduction, a lot of people were really wondering, like, what comes next? What are we going to, mm-hmm. to be doing here? And I know one of the first things we're going to focus on is the runoff election on December 6th between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock for the Senate seat there. Mm-hmm. We've heard some concern that now that Democrats are going to retain control of the Senate, that there's less urgency to this race. Um, So talk, if you will, about why a 51-49 Senate would be so much better than a 50-50 Senate. Yeah, so I I, I can say with confidence that what you're hearing about the the idea of there being less urgency now that we actually have control of the Senate is 100% true. And that is going to be the hardest thing to tackle as we go into this Georgia runoff. So folks on the ground are going to be needing to convince people why it's so important that they come and vote again, even though they just did it a couple of weeks ago. They need to do it again. They need to put themselves in that situation where they're, they're maybe going to be waiting in line for a couple of hours, or they're going to need to take some time off work to vote, or they're going to need to, to do the early voting and think about doing the early voting. So what I think it's going to be really important to talk about is this why. Why is this one extra seat, which is seemingly ineffective, right? Like to a lot of people, they're like, well, it's we still have the filibuster. It's still not 60. So what's the difference between 50 and 51? Well, the difference between 50 and 51 is that in four years, when we're going to be defending another round of Senate seats and trying to flip another round of Senate seats, hopefully this won't be one of them. So instead of spending trillions of dollars on def- on defending another 10, 12 seats and trying to flip another five or six seats, we'll hopefully be not working on flipping this seat. We've already done the work to flip this seat. People on the ground already did the work to flip this seat, and we don't want to have to revert back. All of what we're trying to do right now is progress. So when we look at the House, the fact that we didn't lose as many seats as was predicted is progress. Even though we didn't win, it is progress towards a reality that we have a more representative House and a House that will hopefully be fighting for the many instead of the few. And we have to be looking at the Senate in that same way. Every additional seat that we add on is progress. And if we lose this one, then we're back to the same situation we were in with the Senate or that we're in with the Senate right now, right? Right. Which is a 50-50 split, like complete gridlock, right? So one step, one step closer towards that ideal Senate that we can get a a, a Senate that, that represents the many and not the few. Yeah, that was a I mean, long-winded way of me saying. <laughs> well, I love I love the point that you're making about how you know we're ultimately it's going to marginalize uh, you know either uh, cinema or mansion, but also um, the Senate map in 2024 is going to be brutal. Uh, and so, the more gains we can make in the Senate right now, the better. What can people do? What are you uh, encouraging people to do to help out with this race? Yeah. So folks who are in neighboring states, uh, we are encouraging them to come to Georgia uh, and uh, we'll be doing door knocking 
pretty much this weekend until December 6th. And we have a program running for indivisibles who will be, if folks will be traveling from one of those neighboring states, um, they will be able to help provide transportation or lodging, things like that. Um, and we'll have a pretty significant ground game going. Uh, for folks who are not in a neighboring state, so my, my, my West Coast folks, we're going to be running some phone banks. Um, phone banking will be probably the most significant way that folks on this side of the country will be able to get involved. Uh, post there, there is limited postcarding happening. Indivisible is not running any postcarding because that market is already very oversaturated with other groups who are running their own. And so we're focusing our attention on phone banking and uh, door knocking. Uh, but for postcarding, uh, you have to remember that if you're going to be sending it from the West Coast, it could take a couple of days to get to Georgia. So uh, you want to make sure it gets there with enough time for people to actually register for a, a mail-in ballot, receive the mail-in ballot, and turn it in. Um, that, that'll be really important. So we're letting folks know if you're not finishing your postcards by this weekend, um, it's likely better to focus more on phone banking um, for ways to get involved on this coast. And then uh, we'll have, we'll be partnering with indivisible groups in Georgia, obviously, and then uh, the the America Votes table down there to make sure that our ground game is uh, as smooth as it can possibly be. I will be flying out there uh, right after Thanksgiving, and I'll be running some of our canvassing down there. Many of my colleagues are also going to be doing that. So we're really putting in the full force of everything we have to make sure that uh, we win the seat. We're hoping we can set an example for uh, folks who are are saying, well, what does it matter? Uh, well, it matters to us. It should matter to you. And we're putting as much as we possibly can. I know there's also an emphasis on fundraising, which is absolutely something that people on the ground can, you know, can use at this point. Are there uh, specific uh, funds, organizations that you would recommend people donate to? So I'm always going to first pitch our individual groups in Georgia. Um, so our individual map has all of our active groups listed. Um, so you can actually look at the map and look to see which of the groups in Georgia have fundraising pages and donate directly to them. We're going to be working directly with them for the door-to-door the -door canvassing and the phone banking, and they can use all the support that they can possibly get. Um, and then there are also going to be groups that are national but have done a lot of the work in, in Georgia, like um, uh, Black Voters Matter, uh, Stacey Abrams' group as well. Um, are They're going to continue to be doing this. Yeah. Fair fight, yeah, sorry. Um, uh, they're going to be continuing to do this work, whether we win or not, they're going to be continuing to do that work. And they've been doing that work for years. So continuing to support them is going to be really important. Let's shift over and talk about Indivisible's, uh, Indivisible's priority for the final legislative session. Um, this yeah. is also known as the lame duck session. So we now know that the GOP is going to control the House. So that means, and they've already said that they're going to do things like try to hold the debt ceiling hostage to jam through cuts to Social Security and Medicare I want to talk about the danger here, and I want to hear from you what Democrats can be doing in response and what we can be doing, uh, doing in response. Neither of us are economists. We don't need to go into too deep of a dive here, but just talk a little bit about what the debt ceiling is and how holding it hostage gives the Republicans leverage and then what we can ultimately do to stop this from happening. Yeah, so... Uh... I think, again, not an economist, so I'm not going to talk too in-depth about the debt ceiling and, and the impacts of it, but I, if you've been listening to the news 
at all over the last couple of months, and especially now that uh, control of the House has been uh, solidified for Republicans, you know that there is a major battle over the decision to raise the debt ceiling or not. Um, and the decision to not raise the debt ceiling means that uh, America starts to default on its loans and the entire global economy is potentially going to crash, right? And I say potentially because we know what economists are telling us. I trust economists. I trust those professionals that that is what's going to happen. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll use the word potentially. Um, the, the way that Republicans want to handle and hold the debt ceiling hostage could mean a massive rupture in the global economy, which means a massive rupture in the U.S. markets, the global markets, which means people, everyday people are going to be seeing that impacting their wallets. So as we look at this final legislative session, uh, it's going to be very important for House Democrats and Senate Democrats through the reconciliation process to do some sort of raise to the debt ceiling and get that passed before the new Congress is sworn in. Because well, what we know, oh, no, please go. So this seems like a no brainer for Democrats, right? So where are the sticking points? Why is there a question about everybody not being on board at this point? Well, because we still have Democratic members who are not always going to do the right thing for the Joe Manchin. Yeah, I will, okay, there, I'll, yeah. I'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it that way. And the hope is that we have enough Republicans who can recognize and agree that this would be really bad for everybody. This would be really bad for the global economy. But we also have a Senate and a House. We have two Senate and House Republican leaders, one on each side, who appear to be willing to burn everything to the ground if it's politically expedient for them. And so even if we don't get current two senators who like to make a big splash about things, um, if we're able to get a couple of Republicans, then we'll be in a good shape. But if Mitch McConnell has enough of a hold on his caucus and decides he doesn't want to play ball, he wants to burn everything to the ground, then the likelihood of getting enough people to pass even a reconciliation bill is going to be slim. And what we've been seeing uh, for the last two years that we've had this Democratic trifecta is gridlock, right? We, right? we haven't seen a lot of things pass through the House or, well, we haven't, we've seen things pass through the House and not pass through the Senate because of the, the current makeup of the Senate. So while it is a no-brainer for Democrats to be able to agree that this is important and if we don't do it, the whole world comes to a halt, we have enough folks who are just problem problem people problem members <laughs> that um yeah. that that it, it's it's going to be a matter of well can we make it bipartisan or right. else i'm not going to vote for it well so what action can we here in washington take so i think the most important thing that that folks can do in their own state is continue to put pressure on your senators to say this is important this is urgent don't trust <laughs> Don't trust that every member agrees that this is important and this is urgent unless you've talked to them. Um, so 
I wish that I could say that I believe that every every good Democratic senator during the filibuster fight did that and had these conversations. I just can't. I, I can't in good conscience believe that. But with the filibuster, we didn't have the global economy like hanging by a thread. Right. So I'm hoping that this issue is serious enough that every senator will make it a priority to talk to their friends either on their same side or across the aisle to say look we can disagree on a lot of things but i think we can agree that we all want to prevent a crash in the global economy and we are the 100 people who have the ability to do that and it's time for us to not do what is politically convenient for us just to appease a base who many of them might not even understand what the debt ceiling is and we'll do the right thing for the economy and for the world. So just really to sum up, because we know that both of our senators are on board with raising the debt ceiling yes. in the in the final session, uh, just call up, say, we want you to, to, to do this and we want you to take a leadership role in yep. this. Talk to your speak colleagues. publicly about it. Talk to your or, or if you don't want to speak publicly about it, talk to your colleagues, make a commitment that you're going to reach out to the senators who will remain nameless and ensure that they know the severity of this, right? They know what it means. Um, and, you know, you and I were talking earlier about Social Security and Medicare and speculating, like, why would any senator, especially in a state that has a lot, both of the states that we'd be talking about, have a lot of their constituency who rely on Social Security and Medicare? Why would senators in those states? be willing to allow anybody to dismantle them. And that's what would happen if if we let it go into the next Congress, right? Why would any of those senators allow that to happen? And a lot of the answer to that is some of our senators are so removed from reality and so removed from the actual day-to-day experiences of their constituency that they know that it would be a big deal, but they can't conceptualize what how much of a big deal would actually be so i think the important thing we can do is really pushing our own senators to be having those conversations some of those senators that you mentioned live on houseboats called the almost heaven and and others uh, take time <laughs> off the senate to train and uh, train for and run iron man triathlons yes. so it's called priorities people uh, i also yes, want to talk about <laughs> i also want to talk about two other high priority bills that we would like to see passed uh the respect for marriage act absolutely uh, which just advanced in the senate uh, and then of course the electoral count act super super important tell us very briefly about these two bills and what they do yeah, so the Respect for Marriage Act was um, quickly brought into the spotlight after the um, the decision by SCOTUS to dismantle uh, the Roe v. Wade decision. And it was because uh, one of the Supreme Court justices had indicated that they would like this same thing to happen to um, the Obergefell decision, which protected the right of all people, um, no matter what your uh, orientation is, um, to be able to have a marriage that is recognized under the law. Um, So the Respect for Marriage Act would essentially codify the right of anybody, um, and especially folks in the LGBTQ plus community, um, to be able to 
get married anywhere in the country and uh, have the same rights and protections as any same-sex uh, marriage would have. So that's the Respect for Marriage Act. It's extremely important um, because at this point, it's not speculation, right, that the Supreme Court would try to dismantle Obergefell and, and the, the rights that that, that afforded uh, because it, it's like written in an official SCOTUS opinion yeah. by one of the, the justices that they would like to see the same thing. happen. So that that's the Respect for Marriage Act. Um, the Electoral Count Act is uh, really in response to this larger um, MAGA narrative of election denier the, the election denier movement right it, it's it's in response to this notion that um we shouldn't be trusting our um our elections and that there's this widespread fraud and just like the respect for marriage act uh this would codify into federal law a lot of these uh voting rights protections that we hold near and dear um and would also hopefully dispel uh, much of the election denier uh narrative that mag republicans have been pushing so uh is same call to action on this one with our elected uh, officials yes so i, I- I'm going to be completely honest. Um, I think the Respect for Marriage Act has a much higher likelihood of passing both the House and the Senate uh, than the Electoral Count Act, just because of the fact that neither of them are uh, budget bills, so they can't be passed through a reconciliation process, and they will be likely subject to the filibuster. Um, But that's not to say that both of them aren't important to be calling our members on. Um, so the the same thing that we're asking for folks to be doing uh, in regards to the debt ceiling, we're going to be asking about these two bills as well. And it's the same thing you've been doing for uh, the last six years, right, is uh, taking action, calling your members, both on the House and the Senate side and saying, I'm a constituent. This is important to me. Here's why it's important to me. And you need to stand up for this these rights for everybody and you need to make sure that these pass i think what's important for us to remember as we're doing this advocacy is conveying that you are aware of that sense of urgency making sure that these members know that we are not we we actually know what it means for a new congress to be sworn in and that we know that there's zero chance for Democrats to be able to pass or even introduce either of these two bills or a debt ceiling bill under a Republican-controlled Congress. So I think that is going to be a really important aspect of this beyond just saying, hey, I, I support this, but saying, hey, I support this and I need you to pass it now in this final session because there's no way it's going to get a vote with yeah. Kevin McCarthy as the House Majority Leader. Thank you for driving that point home. I think that's really the sense of urgency in this in this final session uh, writ large is that we're not going to get another chance at chance at this gang. So I think we put our shoulder to the wheel on this one for sure. So before I let you go, um, you know, we've talked a lot about this election. It has been a mixed result, certainly, but I think it has uh, certainly been much more favorable than what we were Mm -hmm. dreading, fearing, anticipating. There's a lot that is shaping up in terms of the dynamic. But what we know right now is that it's going to be a a, a GOP House and it's going to be a Democratic White House and a Democratic Senate. So 
this will be a unique situation for, uh, for, for Indivisible. How are you thinking about our role over the next two years? So I, I think that we're going to, we're definitely going to keep leaning on the role that we've had, right? Which is holding our members accountable. What I'm hoping to see, especially in the States that I organize in, what I'm hoping to see is also a shift in focus to doing deep canvassing, deep values, canvassing, having conversations in your community so that when we get to 2024, we're not going to be four months out from an election and realize that there are entire communities, neighboring communities to us, right? Communities in our district that nobody has ever talked to. So one example that I I love to give are folks at Indivisible uh, CA 49, which is Mike Levin's district. Uh, Since he was elected to office, uh, they have been doing monthly town halls, even if it's on election year, monthly town halls in Mike Levin's district all over the district, every community. Um, they are, they do them in person. They were doing them virtually during the pandemic. And that has created a situation where people are hearing from Mike, about Mike, and from Indivisibles all throughout the year. So the more that we can focus on some of those types of tactics. So deep canvassing is a great one, which for those who, who haven't heard me um, do a shameless plug for deep canvassing. It is uh, a way for us to go knock doors and not talk about an election. We knock doors, we talk to our neighbors about values. Sometimes we'll pick um, things happening at the local level. So if there's a city council um, measure that's a, that that's up for a vote from your city council that folks are either happy or not happy about, um, if there are things going on at the school board, those are the types of issues we can talk to people about and really engage folks at that civic level so that they're not just hearing from us, you know, a couple months before the election. So I think that's going to be a really important role that Indivisibles are going to play because we have that ground game. We are naturally in the community. We are, the groups are people in the community, right? Compared to the size of Indivisible National, we are pretty much just the size of like one Indivisible group. The folks on the ground are where it's at. You all hold that power. And a lot of you hold that, um, you hold a really important status in your community as community leaders. So you need to leverage that and go and talk to people and do deep values canvassing, have these town halls so that when we get to 2024, we can win the house back and hopefully expand the Senate majority so that we're not looking at another two years of gridlock and hold the white house, obviously very important. But, um, but I think the thing we don't want is another two or four years of Senate gridlock, which is what, we ha- what we've had these last two years. We don't want to lose control, but I think we can, I, I think everybody can agree that we have not been able to accomplish as much as we would have liked to over these last two years. And it's been because of that slim, slim majority and the gridlock that exists. So the way to cure that, of course, in 2024 is through continued organizing, as you're saying, yep. canvassing, holding our electeds to account uh, all of the things that that are in our playbook. So uh, 
in, in many ways more of same, but uh, I think there's some subtle differences and we'll certainly be unpacking that over uh, the next couple of years here on the show and going into depth on a number of the things that Nina has talked about here. And by the way, I will also mention gang that we did a show on uh, it, at least in part on deep canvassing. And I will have that in the show notes for you to check out. I highly recommend checking, checking out that information. Just one last thing before I let you go, you've been calling on people to take some time to rest. Talk about the importance yes. of taking time to rest. <laughs> yes. So this movement is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And we have seen there was an uptick in uh, progressive groups after um the 2016 election results. And we've seen many of them flame out. Uh, We're very lucky um, at Indivisible that as a movement, we've continued to grow. And a lot of that is because of you all, because of the Indivisibles on the ground. But the only way that we continue to do the work that we're doing and continue that growth is for folks to pace themselves. Um, Election time is so so brutal on your mental health. It's brutal on your physical health. It can be brutal on your relationships because we know so much is at stake. We give so much to it. So we have a couple weeks until the December 6th runoff. If you're feeling like you don't want to rest until then, I support that because of how important it is. Um, But after the Senate runoff, I think it's extremely important, anybody and everybody, to take a couple weeks to recharge, reconnect with folks in your community, reconnect with your families. Because if you don't, the possibility of burnout is so much more. And once you've actually burned out, it's much harder to get back into this work. But when you take a couple weeks to recharge and rest, you don't hold that resentment towards the work and you're able to come back with a renewed perspective and a little bit more energy to, to keep going in this fight so that we can get to 2024 and 2026 and all the next elections with uh, just as strong or stronger of a movement than we have. True story. And you might even come back minus a beard. You never know. You yes, you might. Or with, <laughs> or with bangs that you cut yourself. I'm loving the bangs, yo. I, I think they look great. Thank well, you. Nina, you are awesome, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, today. Yeah, as always. And, you know, uh, to be continued, as always, uh, I, I love our conversation. So I'll just say like until that. next time. Thank you. Until next time. Thank you, everyone. And that'll do it for this week. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin. If you would like to see a video version of this podcast, head to facebook.com slash indivisible podcast. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.